Did you know that as much as one in four people who have Parkinson's disease are actually misdiagnosed? That could be a lifesaver. Stay tuned. There's a lot more in store in this episode that might totally shock you or make the life of yourself or somebody else even better. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional, and financial strain does not have to be your M.O. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for, and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight, there is a better road ahead. Hello everybody, this is Nancy May from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, or just plain old Elder Care Success, which is easy to remember too. My guest here today is Dr. Michael Ocon, who is the founder of the Movement Disorder Program at the University of Florida. He is currently Chair of Neurology, Professor and Executive Director of the Norman Fixell Institute for Neurological Diseases at the University of Florida Health College of Medicine, which he also founded together with his colleague, Dr. Kelly Fote. He is a pioneer in the studies exploring cognitive behavioral and mood effects of brain stimulation since 2005 in his laboratory and has been working to uncover different ways that the electronic brain signals impact everything that we're doing as it relates to Parkinson's and other neurological disorders. He is instrumental in the construction of a one-stop patient-centered clinic research experience and is acclaimed for this work with both national and international patients seeking care. His change in the care and the research delivery has since been named the Service and Science Hub Model of Care. Dr. Ocon has served as the National Medical Director for Parkinson's Foundation since 2006. He is a noted author. One of his books is The Parkinson's Treatment, 10 Secrets to a Happier Life, which has been translated into over 20 languages. His most recent book is titled Ending Parkinson's Disease. And a little side secret, he is a poet which I think probably gives you a little bit more creative outlet for some of the things that you're doing. Not that this is not creative, but thank you, Dr. Ocon, for joining us. It's a pleasure to have you here with me today. Yeah, it's my pleasure. So one of the things I'd like to start out with is that quite frequently, as I understand it, since I am not a medical professional, is that Alzheimer's is sometimes misdiagnosed when in fact the issue at hand is Parkinson's. Is that correct? It can happen uh, for sure. And, you know, one of the real secrets to helping folks exist in the healthcare system is making sure that we get the diagnosis correct. And a number of years ago, we had put together a little book that was just about 10 secrets to a happier life. And the first secret is knowing the signs and knowing what you, what you have and what you don't have. And there is such a difference between Alzheimer's and Parkinson's disease, both with treatment, um, how it's addressed, how long you can go, for example, with different subtypes or, or different types of Parkinson, you can live for 20, 30, 40 plus years. And so it's a very different phenomenon. And a number of years ago, I started asking people, when you say those words, I have Parkinson's or you have Parkinson's to somebody, those four words can be really difficult uh, for, for people to hear. And what do they think when they hear those four words? And most people will say they think about Alzheimer's, they think about 
ALS, which is Lou Gehrig's disease. They think about brain tumors. They, they just think bad, like all the bad things. And it can be a blessing in disguise to get a diagnosis of Parkinson because many of the, the subtypes are so treatable and there's so many things that you can do for them. And so I will often tell people it's really important to know what you have, know the signs, but also to, to talk to folks that can be can help you to be as informed as you can so that you know that your life's not over just because you receive a neurological diagnosis. Well, Michael J. Fox is probably one of the most well-known individuals who you know, said that he had it at a fairly young age, too, when he was diagnosed. And what he had and, and the symptoms early on when he was younger versus somebody who may be showing some signs when they're older I constantly hear people saying, well, I've, I've got Alzheimer's, but then the doctor misdiagnosed me, and it's really Parkinson's. You mentioned identifying the symptoms. How do the symptoms differ, and how do doctors miss this so frequently? So it's a, it's a great question, and I think, you know, part of it, you know, there's a bit of a, a cynic in me. The word of the day today is cynical from the, the New York Times word of the day, but, you know, there's a bit of a cynic in me. I'll sit in that seat with you, so we're fine. <laughs> yeah, that, that says, you know, like, how could, you know, like, how could this happen? Uh, but then there's a, there's a part of me that also with my own family and myself and my kids and my wife, we've all been through the healthcare system as it is set up. And you have to actually spend time with people and examine them and listen to them to get to the right diagnosis. And there's been a constant pressure to do things faster, quicker. And, um, and I think, you know, important points can be missed. Now, I'd like to think that it's the rush that people are missing, that it's not the education. But I also realize there's the other piece of me that's the realist that realizes that we're just not doing a great job in education. Um, in terms of Alzheimer's disease, there are multiple types of Alzheimer's, and so it's important to you know get with the doc and and the healthcare team, and doesn't necessarily have to be a doctor. And we often say the center of the world, the center of the universe, is the person with the disease, and we all should rotate around them, whether we're a doctor or or not. And the the doctor is not the god, you know, in this in this relationship. But memory loss. Getting lost, you know, taking wrong turns, um, just lapses of things that you normally would, you know, would be able to do. So a lot of more of the cognitive types of thinking symptoms are what present early on with Parkin with uh, Alzheimer's disease. Whereas with Parkinson, the thinking um, issues or so-called cognitive issues, those occur more later in the disease. And so that's the first major difference. The other thing that folks don't always appreciate is that not all Parkinson people look the same and there are a lot of different phenotypes. And so four out of five people have a tremor, but that means one out of five, 20% don't have a tremor. So people are expecting to see a tremor. So it's often missed because there's no tremor. And um, you can have this stiffness and slowness. Some people have walking problems when they present, little short steps. Some people do not. Some people that are young that have genetic forms of Parkinson, you mentioned Michael J. Fox, have what's called dystonia, where the muscles fight against each other and they see these abnormal postures. And if you don't know what you're looking at, then you might miss it, which is what happened, you know, with Michael J. Fox. It was missed because people think, oh, they can't have Parkinson. You're, you're so right. young. But the reality right. is, is, is that, uh, 
within my clinic, I have kids that are in their teens, 20s, 30s, you know, like lots of young people can get Parkinson. Of course, it becomes more common as you age, but knowing the signs is the first secret. And we wrote that book, 10 Secrets to a Happier Life. It became a runaway bestseller. And I thought, gosh, this was just meant to give a few secrets after, you know, the wisdom of having seen a lot of people. And that was of all the hundreds of articles that I've been involved with writing or co-authoring and 14 books, that's the one that people just have read and just kind of ran away. And they were very simple things that are important. And so I've learned the humility of not assuming everybody knows even the basics. You mentioned the the shuffling or the walking, the slowness, which I wonder early on may somebody may just write off as it's arthritis. I'm just I'm just getting older. I put on too much weight. It's more difficult to do. So instead of maybe just going to a rheumatologist, they should actually consider going or a family member should consider going to a neurologist to address these issues in conjunction with also thinking about rheumatoid arthritis or something else. Is that correct? Yeah. So the most common, what we call comorbidity or other illness associated with Parkinson is arthritis. But, you know, you don't be surprised when I tell you, you know, as you age, arthritis is very common among the population. The folks that commonly see Parkinson people early and miss the diagnosis, and and there's, you know, I'm not casting any blame or aspersion, but is usually orthopedics and orthopedic surgeons. And the reason for that is, is it very commonly can present with either shoulder pain or pain in one side of the body and a decreased shoulder shrug and so they assume that there's a nerve problem or a spinal cord problem you know or a joint problem and so you know after you know doing a few scopes and you know going all the way through then it becomes a you know more obvious that they're actually moving more slowly and so it can be missed by orthopedists and by family practitioners you know who are thinking about common things like carpal tunnel syndrome. And so a lot of times people get sent for nerve entrapment things for shoulder surgeries and orthopedic surgeries. They come out of the surgery and they they look worse or the surgery unmasks the symptom and they really start to shake or start to do something they didn't do because of the anesthesia. And so it's not uncommon for folks to come to our attention because they've been to somebody else and they've had a procedure that either didn't work or or unmasked something else. Wow. You know, I'm sitting here sort of cringing in pain right now thinking about some of this stuff because not to to knock orthopedics or or surgeons, but the tendency for us to believe that they're quick with a knife because that's what they do and that's how they're known for doing something as opposed to slowing things down a little bit because Parkinson's is not going to progress fast, I'm presuming. Is that correct? That's right. In most cases, it's a it's a slower you know, progression. Again, there are different subtypes. Some can can go a little faster than others, but it's it's slower and in general, much slower than another disease. Like we started out today talking about Alzheimer's disease. Right. Alzheimer's and dementia, which can go at different levels as well. And I, I this is sort of my own personal bias where I think once you hit a certain age, a primary care doctor is also depending upon where you live, more readily or, or more quick to say, ah, well, you're just getting old. Yeah. You know, suck it up, buttercup kind of thing, which is probably not what you want to hear from your doctor. They may not say that directly, but, I'm, you know, that's sort of in the back of my brain. Like you've gotten fat, you've yeah. gotten lazy, you've gotten old. What do you expect, right? And you've got 
I have other other illnesses, which I think after the age of 65, there's an average of at least four other yep. comorbidity-related health issues, if that's the correct number. That's right, yep. Which if, if you reach 65 and you don't have that, give yourself yeah. five right. gold stars right now. <laughs> And read one of, of Dr. Okan's poems, maybe something a little bit more, the, the 10 steps to being happier. But Parkinson's, is it considered a hereditary disease or is it something that we can pick up environmentally as well? So um, it's a great question. And the answer is both and nuanced. And the nuanced answer is that we know 10, 15, depending on which geneticist you talk to, maybe up to 20%, but probably closer to 15% have single gene issues. The change in the DNA is causative, is responsible for the Parkinson's. Not meaning that groups of DNA can confer a risk, that these are actual genes that have something to do with Parkinson, like Michael J. Fox would have a gene, and then the younger folks would present more commonly with genetic abnormalities that are associated with them. Those below the age of 50 have a higher risk. But that means that 80% or 80% plus don't have a single gene DNA abnormalities. So then you scratch your head and you ask yourself, well, what's going on with those cases? And we did a little research on a book that we wrote with Ray Dorsey and Boston Bloom and Todd Scherer called Ending Parkinson's Disease. And, and as we were looking at Parkinson and other diseases, you have to ask the question, does age account for all of these extra cases, right? The population is getting older. And as the population gets older and we live longer, and the answer you know, was given to us by Ray Dorsey, who's an expert in this area, that age you know, accounts for some of it, but not all of it. So you do, it is a higher risk as you get older. And so you know, we began to ask the question, are there other factors? Like for example, in the mid 1800s, you know, the industrial revolution really began to take off, right? And so we've seen lots of changes in our environment not only with the air quality in the environment, but pesticides and other things that we introduce, other compounds. And now we know there are several things that are associated in the environment, like paraquat exposure as a pesticide, degreasers, and things used in dry cleaning, like TCE exposure, air pollution that have been associated with Parkinson and degenerative phenomenon. And so the question is, is why when we look, and a number of us have sat on the World Health Organization committee recently and, and had some good discussions about this, why is it that Alzheimer's is the most common neurological you know, disease, degenerative disease, but Parkinson is the fastest growing, right? And, um, and we look at, yeah, so when we look at the numbers as they come out, we're growing, you know, faster than we would expect. And so, you know, there's a big question mark as to why that is. And so when we went to the White House and we started to talk about a red card campaign to try to get the White House and Congress involved, and now there is a bill in front of the House that has the same name as our book, Ending Parkinson's Disease Bill. Mm. I don't know if you've seen this, but it was just introduced and or is about to be introduced. And um, this is super important, but one of the Things that we asked for was banning paraquat. Paraquat's been banned in over 30 countries around the world, but its use has more than doubled 
in the last five to ten years here in the U.S. And that's a pesticide or what is it? That's a pesticide, right, that's sprayed on, on crops. And so that was one of the things that we focused on, you know, as being important. And it, it underscores, getting back to your question, it underscores what are the other factors that we're missing? What are the blind spots here? And one of the blind spots is what are we doing that's contributing to this increased risk? You know, I, I think about beyond what's, what our food source is, is going through, we, my husband and I were beekeepers for a while, and I say it was a very bad bee parent because our honey cost in the long run about $50 an ounce and what we got from all the things that we did. But we also learned about neonicotoids, which are chemical pesticides that are going into the, the food source system, which actually, for those who are listening and don't understand this, the pesticide goes into the roots system of the plant and goes through the entire plant right through to the pollen. And the bees pick that up and take it back to their hive, which can cause what they call colony collapse or, or other disorders with the bees, which is so important to our food source system. But if that's happening for those types of pollinating insects, then just think about what's happening to our own bodies when we're ingesting all of this. And one of the questions I had is if there is ways to combat it from a, from a food or a nutritional perspective, like everybody says, you know, for your heart and your brain and cancer, take broccoli and bananas and low-fat inflammatory foods. If those foods are impacted by these pesticides, does a diet actually help when you're diagnosed to relieve some of the symptoms or, or not? So diet is one of the hottest areas, you know, in degenerative disease research and it's one of the kind of really aha moments and there's been some clues with diet that have been in the research literature for example there are studies coming out of hawaii in the honolulu aging study and you can look at exposure to milk you know and the pesticide you think about pesticides and milk exposure and risk of parkinson's or blue zones they talk about that from a longevity yeah so you think about the impact of uh, you know like the you know where there's a, a a zone between pesticides and food right so you think about that and then you think about diet and the microbiome and the way i describe it is if you were reading the bible for the first time uh, it would be like the, we're on like the first page of Genesis, you know, like the, about this issue. And, and it's one of these things that the microbiome are all the little creatures that live normally in your gut, you know, and it's kind of a little bit odd to be thinking about, you know, the, the symbiosis of other living things, but we depend on them. And there's a normal and there's an abnormal. And when you start taking thousands and millions of these, different you know, organisms and phages and bacteria, and then they change throughout the day, even in normal people, right? And so it's gonna take an automated intelligence, artificial intelligence, or some higher computer level intelligence to get hold of the changes in the microbiome. And so there's a whole host of really interesting studies that are going on now across degenerative diseases, trying to kind of put together the basis, the infrastructure of a house so we can understand that. And at the same time, we have folks that are doing really interesting work in the laboratory where you can change the microbiome of the, the animals. And, um, and in very, you know, somewhat magical ways, you can 
um, have them express Parkinson's disease symptoms and then try to rescue the symptoms. And so there are now animal models looking at diet. And this gets to the issue of inflammation too, you know, and people mm-hmm. talk about inflammation and, you know, what you eat has a lot to do with that. And so, you know, in summary, there's just a whole bunch of really interesting studies that are going on to try to understand the microbiome, understand the gut and brain connections, as we now know there are connections, connectivity, to understand nutrition better. And then remember, you've still got the person with the disease, and so they have a lot of GI symptoms, right? And absorption affection medicines and Parkinson and constipation um, is a big symptom that's very common. So a lot of gastrointestinal symptoms in places like ours that are multidisciplinary, we have a, a gastroenterologist in a specialty gastroenterology clinic as part of our Parkinson multidisciplinary workup and, and, and management. And so that, if that gives you a sense of how important it's become. I love what you're just saying. The approach is not just looking at the disease as one issue but really looking at the person and the whole body and how we as as humans basically work as one giant crazy organism you know it's multiple organs basically is what's going on in us versus just that you know here's the problem here's the symptom take a pill go away which i think is so important the other thing in in looking at all of this is although we're talking about diet and other related issues here changing habits is such an issue for us as an adults. I'm wondering whether you've done any research or work to try and look at how this works with younger people who may not even be diagnosed to try and change the patterns of where they are so that down the road they don't succumb to Parkinson's or even their families when there's a predisposition to it. Yeah, so... It's hard to put you know a control factor on something like that from a research perspective. So there's a couple of things that we and others have been giving a lot of thought to. And one of those has been the prodromal symptoms. So understanding signs and symptoms that may give you the clue that you're in the early stages of Parkinson, even before maybe you develop stiffness, slowness, you know, rigidity, tremor, any of those symptoms that are more obvious. And now we know there are a number of these symptoms. And if you read the papers, a lot of the experts refer to them as prodromal, and so these would be symptoms like loss of smell or changes in your smell, acting out your dreams, constipation, sometimes neuropsychiatric types of symptoms, depression, anxiety that wasn't you know there before. So clues that that you could be about to convert, you know, to Parkinson, but you've actually already got Parkinson if you're having those types of symptoms. The field is really interested, as all disease fields are, not just Parkinson, in identifying people early in the course of the disease and then intervening early. So the idea, with the idea of being simply if you develop a treatment that you can modify the progression of the disease or slow the disease progression, you'll want to apply that treatment as early as possible. So applying it at a prodromal level when people are manifesting some of these symptoms, if you can pick them up and, and then diagnose them with either biomarkers or exam, that would be a, uh, a great thing. You know, one of the, the struggles has been that usually it's too late when people are down the road a while when you right. enroll into these studies. And so identif- and identifying them is important. Now, remember, 
there are, you know, 10, 15, 20% of people with gene problems with Parkinson's or problems with their DNA. And so we think about, let's say you have somebody with Parkinson in your family. You think about, could it be genetic? And about half of people after they receive genetics counseling actually want to get the gene testing for Parkinson. Many of the Parkinson genes are what are called low penetrants. That means if I tell you you have a gene defect, but only 30% of people end up having Parkinson, do you really want to know like whether or not you have the gene? Yeah, been there, done that, right? You may change your life, but you may never get Parkinson. And so there are a number of folks. I know David Simon at Beth Israel, Harvard in um, Boston, that work a lot with uh, patients and have programs working at counseling with a lot of the family members and trying to sort some of these issues out, but they're, they're not small issues and the identification of that risk is important. Now, we have had a lot of interest where folks come in and let's say your dad or your mom or your grandpa has Parkinson and you say, okay, I, you know, what can I do? Should I start exercising more? Should I eat a Mediterranean diet? Um, you know, like what are the things I can do to, you know, potentially stave off the risk? There are some epidemiological studies, these mean association, so this isn't the strongest type of evidence to apply to that problem, that are suggesting that diet might be important, a Mediterranean diet might, might be important to the risk, exercising regularly might be important to the risk. And so I think a better, more clear understanding of those things could be important to, to people who, who may be at risk. I hear a number of people saying, well, I'm good. I'm helping my, my mom or my dad or, or my spouse deal with these brain exercises online, and therefore that's going to stave off some of these things. Does that make any difference in, in Parkinson's? or There's some evidence. Because it's not a memory disease. Yeah, I mean, there's some evidence that doing some of these things, changing your lifestyle, Factors. There's some evidence, you know, that's supportive um, of that, but it's not, it's not one to one. It's not like if I said to you, go ahead and do this. You know, I take that that this is gonna, you're gonna get a gold medal at the end, or a silver medal, or a bronze medal, or, or even a consolation prize. <laughs> you know, I can't, I can't tell you with certainty. You know, that the that the studies that have associations and correlations are gonna end. Up. I can tell you. From a population standpoint, that exercise is really good for your health and exercise seems to be really important in degenerative diseases like Parkinson. I can tell you that there was a recent study in the journal JAMA Open Network. I'm an editor for an associate editor for JAMA Neurology. And I can tell you that, you know, like the, there's interesting data on, you know, mortality and living well when you take at least 7,500 steps a day with your watch or whatever your meter is. But once you go over 10,000, the effect kind of wanes. So there's kind of a, mm. a, a sweet spot zone that's good for you. But it's not only good for Parkinson, it's good for other things as well. And so I think we're just at the beginning of starting to unravel that thread and, and understand the, the disease from a, you know, like a a larger 50,000 foot view. I think we've been caught in the weeds a bit. So we've talked a bit about the disease, the identification of it, things we can do to try and help support it, or maybe just diet and exercise and not cut with a knife if we can get a you know, proper diagnosis. But once fully diagnosed and you know somebody's got Parkinson's, 
and is advancing in age because there are other things that are going on and that you know that's just part of of living things break down are there some ways or some things that we can do to make that individual's life better and our own life easier as caregivers that you would recommend absolutely so more than half of the folks that come in to see us we know through the parkinson foundation i've been their medical director and advisor since 2006 and We've done the largest longitudinal real-life study of Parkinson called the Parkinson Outcome Project. And we know that more than half of people, when we look at the multidimensional caregiver strain index, have caregiver strain with Parkinson. And so the one of the number one things we can do is to not focus the visit 100% on the um, person with Parkinson. And in fact, some would say, and I, I would be one of them, that half of that visit should be, you know, really aim squarely at the caregiver and the caregiver's health because the data suggests that you're going to do better the better your your caregiver is. And in fact, the other problem that we've identified through data and through research is that when the woman has Parkinson's disease and not the man, they're much less likely to get the social support that they need. Hmm. And that's another problem, you know. And so really identifying and understanding that relationship can help long term. Putting people on early, and we've written a few articles, review articles for the Journal of American Medical Association, one for Lancet recently on the treatment of Parkinson. And it's become much more accepted now to use exercise early to use stretching early, to use multidisciplinary team care early. And so people say, well, when I first started out, you know, there was a concern if I sent folks to physical therapy or occupational therapy or speech therapy, for example, those are three mainstays of rehabilitation. If you send them when they're first diagnosed with Parkinson, are you over-referring these people? And what we have found out through years of doing this, and not just us at the University of Florida, but people all over the world within the Parkinson Foundation network is the therapists actually want to see the patients earlier, the people with diseases earlier, and they can be much more effective by getting them on strategies and getting them moving and doing things. And the the other really, you know, terrifying and awful thing that we saw during COVID-19 was when the Parkinson folks got separated from their rehabilitation therapies and from their exercise plans and from their stretching routines did a lot worse. And so, you know, I think that it's really super important to, to you know, to, to pay attention to these things and, uh, and that they do make a difference. And early intervention of putting a plan in place, you know, we often say having a plan is really important. And I think people, at least in the American healthcare system, I can speak to go to their, you know, their doctor's office or their healthcare professional's office, and they're lucky to get in to be seen, and they're lucky to get parking, and they feel honored to have had a few minutes with somebody, and they don't often exit the building with a plan, with a comprehensive plan, and they just sort of say, you know, okay, good, they can't get there. They're more likely to exit with a prescription and a pat on the back. You know, so constructing health systems that treat people, both persons with disease, but also caregivers in a different way, in a different paradigm, I think that's the potential to save us billions of dollars in hip fractures and 
and um, the comorbidities, nursing home placement, keeping people at home, um, offering them, you know, some of what would be called palliative care services. Now they don't have cancers, and people often equate palliative care with cancer, but it's not really, you know, cancer. In fact, some would argue all of healthcare is palliative care. You know, helping people to care who we know. If there's one promise we'll all get, it's, it's that we're all going to die, right, at some point, right? And so how can we live better? And so instead of talking about the lifespan, we should be talking about the health span. How many years can we live well? This whole conversation is, is sort of pulling me back. We start out early on the, the challenge in the whole healthcare system to begin with and how it works. We as families, caregivers, and patients tend to look at the system as, I'll call them gods, yourself, yourself included, because you are in many cases to people who are, are getting better, uh, or at least waning off the suffering from, from a particular illness. But it's so important for us to really take control of our own lives and our situation. And if you're not getting it, stand up or sit down and demand that things need to change and this is what you need and ask for it so that you're proactive in the work that you get done for yourself and for a loved one and work together with a doctor. And if it's not the right doctor, get the right support through Dr. Ocon's group or, or through others so that you do have a plan because a plan and good habits will make life so much easier for both the patient and, and the family and the caregiver. You mentioned that that we don't get out of I get out of living alive, <laughs> I guess is probably the best way to say it. And to not to end on a on a downer, one question that I have is because we're so our society I think is so obsessed and frightened of Alzheimer's and dementia and we see what happens at the end there. But what does the end look like for somebody who's got Parkinson's disease? Is it the same or what do we look for? And how do we make those final years or even months better? Yeah, so, you know, I think you're asking a, a question that is uh, tricky, you know, to answer. It's tricky because getting back to this idea that Alzheimer's and Parkinson's are not the same disease and they have a very different course. It's um, it's really you know I don't want to say it's irresponsible, but it's it's not really helpful I think to families to jump into the first conversation with them and and try to tell them look this is how things are going to go. I think that it is helpful when you have Parkinson's and you get the diagnosis to one not get too far down on yourself because this is a very treatable you know syndrome that has a lot of things that we can do and people can go a long time and, and live really long lives and I think I mentioned some of those subtypes can go 20, 30, 40 years. So it's more positive illness if you're going to get one, right? Yeah, and well, and I, I think it can be, and but you know, it can be negative if you start out negative, right? And so right. it usually takes a couple of data points to decide what type of trajectory you're on. So seeing somebody who's an expert a few times give you a sense of you know they document like what what we call phenotype what do you look like compared to the encyclopedia of other parkinson folks that we've seen and to, to think through like okay the more data points we get if we enroll you in the parkinson foundation parkinson outcomes project we start to understand you then we can we can show you the data like we can you know it's democratization of data here's what we see here's your motor scores Here's, you know, your, your mood, motor, quality of life scores. Here's how they're progressing. Here's what they're like compared to other 
you know, people that we've seen. And we can begin to say, gosh, you know, if I, if I look across, you know, all of these people, thousands of people that we've treated, people that have this pattern usually tend to do really well. Whereas people that have this pattern tend to progress a little faster and may fall, be at risk of falling, you know, sooner. And so maybe we want to be proactive and asset based thinking to think about all the things we can do to prevent those things from happening. And so, to me, it's um, it's an investment in the family and in the person to again coming back to this plan to to put them on the plan. And you know, Matt Stern, who's a neurologist in um, at the University of Pennsylvania, tells a great story. And you know, recently um, we did some work with a, a company called Metaflix, and there's a, a movie uh, about Gina who drives all over the country, and she stops and she picks up Matt and and uh, Philadelphia and they take a ride together and he tells this story of how a person with Parkinson disease there's a there's a deck of cards and they say pick a card out of this deck and you're gonna get whatever disease is on that card and the, the guy picks out you know a card and it's Parkinson's disease now and then the guy says look you can either keep that card or you can put it back and, and pull another card but you're going to get something because we're all going to get something. And uh, and so the uh, the guy thinks about it and he says, okay. He says, you know what, I think I'm going to keep this one. I think this is actually a pretty good card. And I think it's a good story because on the scale of trying to think about what you have, how bad could it be, and everybody wants to know these answers, it's really good to develop trust, to get a plan, to get the care partner on board together and make sure they're getting adequate attention along the way and to, to try to understand together what the journey is because we're all going to take the journey and the journey is going to be different for different folks and a lot of people with Parkinson are going to end up with heart disease and cancer or other things and it won't be the Parkinson that takes them out but for a lot of people the Parkinson is going to really contribute to be a deterioration because it is progressively degenerative and that deterioration could contribute to you know your risk of something and so getting out in front of that risk and being proactive as I think you use that word I think is important. Yeah I love this discussion Michael the the thing that I think I love the most about it is it it creates a sense of positive feeling going forward and not doom and gloom, which is so important for families and caregivers. And working together as a unit where I don't think we naturally do that. We sort of divide and separate and put into little compartments and boxes as opposed to putting together under one roof really is probably the best analogy. And then the fact that you're looking at bringing the caregiver into part of the discussion or much of the discussion, because it's a it's a team play, no matter what you're looking at. It's the doctor, it's the other providers that are there. Hopefully you can help with insurance because <laughs> the insurance companies are gonna push back on a lot of this research as well because they don't wanna pick up the expenses as, as our population gets older. But ultimately, if we as caregivers are not engaged in, in a, in a I, and I hate to use the term, but I'm going to use it anyway, like sort of a mentally positive, uplifting approach, then every day is going to be a cloudy day and it doesn't need to be. So thank you. I appreciate that. 
Are there any sort of final closing things that you think we have missed that you want to share with people? And I'll include all the notes and links to articles that Dr. Oakham was talking about as well here, including his books. What's one last thing that you think people should should think about as we move forward around the issue of Parkinson's? Yeah, I, you know, over 20 years ago now, we started Kelly Foot in Iowa was a movement disorder center for Parkinson that became the Fixell Institute for Neurologic Diseases at the University of Florida. And everybody knows, if they know me, that for over 20 years, I'm like a broken record. I say the same thing over and over, and I think it's effective. And so I'll say it to you, and that's the person with the disease, the patient with the disease is the sun, and we should orbit around the patient and all of our missions, clinical, research, education, outreach. And if we do that, if we always come back to our core principle, if we do that, in my mind, we can be much more successful, effective, we can impact more lives. And the greatest measure of impact, in my mind, is not so much the uh, about how much money you make, it's how many lives you have. That's a fabulous and beautiful way of ending, and it focuses on us. We all need a purpose to have a better life ourselves, and if we focus on the sun and the center, then and thinking about, I think actually thinking about the individual as as the sun as opposed to a problem in our lives, then that's a great way of, of approaching it. So thank you, Dr. Okan. I really appreciate your time and your energy and all the work that you're doing. You're not too far from where I live, so I, hopefully not for Parkinson's. I'd like to meet you someday in person. <laughs> my pleasure. Be my pleasure. Thank you for having me. Take care. Bye bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies a step-by-step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com. All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity, LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright 2021, Caremanity, LLC.